Hey everyone, this is Seraphim Hamilton. Uh, Christ is risen. Uh, I hope you all had a lovely Pascha and bright week. Uh, today what I want to talk about is a connection between Numbers 5 and uh, Luke 7, the story of the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears that I noticed during the bridegroom matins. Uh, before we get into that, uh, I want to say that if you're interested in supporting this channel, and if you're interested in having one-on-one -on -one discussions with me about anything that you'd like, uh, please consider becoming a patron at $20 or above. I guarantee at least one hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion over Zoom or the phone or whatever every month if you want to take advantage of it, and you can take advantage of it every month if you'd like. Uh, sometimes it goes uh, over an hour. It just depends on how much time I have, whether there are calls scheduled after you, so on and so forth. If that's something you'd like to take advantage of, then that is available. If there's something that you really think I can help you, with, uh, but you just can't afford a pat uh, patronage, that's okay. Just email me at seraphimhamilton at gmail.com. Let me know your issue, and God willing, we can try to work out a time that works for us both. I'll just send you the calendar that I send to my uh, patrons. Uh, so, um, you know, that's that. Um, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I haven't made a video recently. Blah, blah, blah. I have been doing patron calls, so I haven't been completely unproductive. Um, but obviously, it's been Holy Week and some other stuff has been going on. I would appreciate your prayers, as always. Uh, but with that said, let's get into the uh, main subject of this video. Now, uh, the Old Testament passage that forms the basis of what I want to talk about today is one of those strange passages. It's one of those passages that even when you're bored as heck... Uh, when you're reading through the Bible, it kind of stands out at you and you say, what in the world did I just read? You know, the classic example from Genesis is when the angel of the Lord touches Jacob's thigh and says, therefore, the Israelites do not eat the meat that is in the socket of the thigh because the angel of the Lord touched the uh, uh, touched Jacob in that place. And you're like, well, of course, that the, the, the conclusion follows definitely from the premise. Um, because there's obviously a lot of unstated stuff that's going on there that makes sense of that passage, and the strangeness of it is part of the point. It's meant to be jarring so that we're alerted to the fact that there's other stuff that we have to uh, 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 get in our heads, and when we get that stuff in our heads, then there's all sorts of other stuff that we weren't thinking about in passages that we thought we understood, but we were really our understanding was an illusion because of the apparent simplicity of the passage. So uh, this is often called the, in, um, the ordeal of the bitter waters. Uh, I prefer... James Jordan's terminology, the inspection of jealousy. Uh, basically, what goes on in Numbers 5 is that uh, if there is a, a bride who has been suspected of adultery, uh, of breaking faith with her husband, and the, the words are spirit of jealousy comes upon her husband, she can be brought to the tabernacle, she will loosen her hair, and what this means is she will remove her head covering. Um, she will loosen her hair because that's something that you would at least wear in the presence of God. I don't know if it was worn in day-to-day -day life, but it certainly was worn in the presence of God at the tabernacle. Uh, and she would drink down water that was mixed with dust from the tabernacle. She would present to God a tribute offering that was taken from barley. Okay, this is the... As far as I can recall, this is the one use of barley in the ritual system of the Pentateuch. And it, she will drink it down, and what will happen is she is either going to be blessed, she'll be given children, or she will be cursed, and she will swell up. And this is a way of talking about um, uh, barrenness. Uh, so there, in Scripture, the ground is feminine. That's not just something in Scripture. It's one of those universal archetypes. Mother Earth. Genesis chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. As, as I repeat, ad nauseum, that always means offspring. 
and the offspring is the offspring of the spirit of God, which is the bridegroom, and the dust of the ground, which is the bride. So you have the earth who is personified in maternal or feminine terms. Uh, and give me just one second. Anyway, she's described in, um, or the earth is described in feminine terms, uh, the formed, structured earth as it becomes a mirror or an imprint of the heavenly life is a city, and so cities are also brides. That's why the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. New Jerusalem signifies the church. A city is the formed version of the creation because what a city is, every little inch of space in that city serves a particular function. And so the earth, i.e. the material cosmos, becomes more comprehensively purposeful as man pours his rationality into it and restructures matter, just dirt, into something that plays a particular purpose in the divine economy, but also in the human economy because those become more and more the same thing as the human will is harmonized with the divine will through the benefit that has been secured for us through the incarnation. And you'll note that I said economy, but we're talking in a spiritual sense, but because man Mankind in his social life becomes more and more aligned to the life of God, we're also talking in a concrete material sense because the human economy, that is simply a way of abstracting out the aspect of our common life whereby one thing is transformed into something of higher value. So wealth over time, all things being equal, all things being themselves, increases as man pours energy into the world from God ultimately increases its value, though the raw material of the world remains exactly what it was on the first creation day. God creates the heavens and the earth, and that is the only act of ex nihilo creation in the entire history of the world, at least so far as we know, and at least so far as I'm telling you, and so it is my humble yet accurate opinion. So think about why we would use the word barren to describe a woman who's unable to have children and think about the original context in which that is theologically significant in the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis, right? And what's going on throughout Genesis? Well, throughout Genesis, what you have is you have the patriarchs and their wives and their wives can't have children. But what else is going on? Well, you've got the patriarch and you have a land which has been promised to them. And that land is not bearing any fruit. God has said he's going to give you a land of promise. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be a great land. But it seems that the land stinks because it's not bearing any fruit. It's constantly from suffering from famine. This land which God has said is going to be so amazing. It's going to be the envy of all nations. Well, it's this land which the patriarchs are living in, and they have to keep going down to Egypt to get food because it's not bearing any fruit. And there's a spiritual correspondence between these two things because women signify the creation as it stands as a whole in relation to God. And so what we have here, when we understand the way that these things all roll together, what we have going on in Numbers chapter 5, whether or not the ritual was ever applied um, literally or concretely, and I may have a few words to say about that question, whether or not it was ever applied literally or concretely, the, uh, the sense that I think is most important for us is the parabolic sense, the spiritual or quote-unquote allegorical sense. And it's not just an arbitrary allegorization of a strange text. It's something that emerges out of an already established logic in the Pentateuch. If you go to Numbers chapter 5, you're going to find that the context is in the uh, a setting where there's lots and lots of bridal themes going on. So uh, the most obvious or straightforward example of this would be in the next chapter, where you have a uh, their description for the taking of a Nazarite vow. So 
The most famous Nazarites in the Bible are the ones who have permanent Nazarite vow. But that's not something which has any regular standing in the liturgical system of the Pentateuch. A permanent Nazarite is something that seems to occur by special divine instruction. So that we have uh, Samson, we have uh, Samuel, who, by the way, were born in the same year, and we have John the Baptist. Those are the three permanent Nazarites that we have in the Bible. But what a Nazarite is, is a Nazarite is a person who is consecrated, him or herself, because you'll notice that there can be female Nazarites. It can, it's a person who's consecrated him or herself at an elevated level of holiness because they are being specially set apart for a divine service. And that divine service, it is both constructive and destructive. In other words, it can be in holy war, where the war is genuinely consecrated, which is an exception to a general rule. Um, or it can be for the creative function of ministry. So Paul, for example, takes a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts right before he goes on one of his missionary journeys because what is it that he's doing? He's proclaiming the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the victory of Christ after which he builds his house. He establishes his kingdom. If you look at the word gospel throughout the Old Testament, you're going to find that it has to do with a victory on the part of a king or a royal figure. The king will send out his heralds. They will announce the result of this conflict, and then you can accept it or not. But if you don't accept it, you're not going to be the one who wins in the end because the victory has already been won. So it has this context uh, in, in a, a way of thinking that on the one hand can be understood in military terms, but on the other hand can be understood in constructive terms. Because in Scripture, there's no war that is waged by God which is not simultaneously creative in the very motion that is, it is destructive. It is only on the part of human beings that we wage purely destructive endeavors. Whenever God allows us to wage one of those endeavors, he all, always has some creative purpose that he brings out in and through it. Well, here in number six with the Nazarite vow, one of the things that you have to do when you, when you dedicate your head is you allow your hair to grow out. Now, in Scripture, allowing your hair to grow out to that length, Jesus had long hair, but when you say long, we're talking relative to our expectations of what short hair is, which means about shoulder length. Jesus had about shoulder length hair. Here we're talking about if the Nazarite vow lasts and lasts and lasts, it can grow down to his butt, and that's women's hair. Uh, you know, to, to, to be honest, I mean, Paul speaks about this in, in, in first Corinthians. So, you know, take it up with him. But, um, uh, there's a reason that in the liturgical system of Israel, a man is not only permitted, but commanded to allow his hair to grow out to that length under the Nazarite vow. It's because he is a warrior bride and that's James Jordan's terminology. And actually there's a tradition that the Virgin Mary herself took a, uh, uh a Nazarite a temporary Nazarite vow, either it's an explicit tradition or the historical details of her life make sense in light of that, uh, of that particular vow. So I'm going to just make that note here because I don't remember exactly how much specificity the tradition has about it. But who is the bride? The bride is a bride to God as bridegroom. And you'll notice that it is in the book of Numbers, and this is all ritual liturgical law because the household here is the household of God. But the household of God simultaneously symbolizes the household of Israel. That's why Israel's sins make the tabernacle unclean or impure. It has to be cleaned up year after year after year. Now, what does that mean when God has the same house that Israel has? Well, what that means is that they must be married because they share one house. They live together, so they have the same household. The logic of the Hebrew Bible is going to strain towards the incarnation, whereby God is going to join himself permanently and, irre and irrevocably to the human family, and thus through the human family, to the creation. Well, what do we have before the 
inspection of jealousy at the end of Numbers 5. We have laws like this. This is Numbers 5, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel, they put outside the camp everyone who has leprosy or has a discharge, everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. So the laws of ritual impurity, we always have to keep in mind that this is not about sin. Sometimes it overlaps with sin. Sin is going to make you ritually impure, but being ritually impure doesn't make you sinful. Uh, what uncleanness, what ritual impurity is, is it is about the spread of death and inhibiting the spread of death. Because death reigned, it says in the Bible, from Adam to Moses, and God restrained the reign of death from Moses onwards. He placed controls on it. He placed certain special regulations around the camp of Israel until the time where God entered into the human family and broke the power of death. Because from the time of creation and the fall to the time of Jesus Christ, it was death which was on the uh, uh, on the move. Death was expanding. We see this in Romans chapter 5, where death spreads from person to person. That's the way that it's described in the book of Leviticus. Death is a contagion. It's a disease. It goes from person to person. You have to control it by isolating yourself, by quarantining yourself. That's literally what people do here. They go into ritual quarantine so that they don't come into contact with unholiness in that ritual sense. They don't come into contact with the inverse of consecration, because if they are at that level of distance from what it means for God to be God, because what it means for God to be God is for him to be fully alive. If you are at a certain level of distance from that and you come into contact with God in that state, it's dangerous for you. The person who touched the Ark of the Covenant and was struck dead at that moment is probably in heaven. Okay? I can't speak for certain. I've been given a special revelation, but he's probably in heaven. He's probably okay. Uh, the same for Nadab and Abihu. I speak with less certainty there, but they're, uh, the, the, the traditional... Uh, at least, I don't know if there is a traditional Christian understanding of this, but I know the traditional Jewish understanding is that they were fine people. Uh, uh, but they committed a ritual crime, and it killed them. Not because God was freaking out, but because it's dangerous. Because God is God. That has certain effects on what it means to be a sinful, death-bearing human being. Now, when Christ comes into the world, the logic reverses. And that is why things that would make any other person unclean don't make Jesus unclean. The woman with the issue of blood, she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. That is a priestly aspect of his clothing. That is the special fringe that every Israelite has to wear as a sign that they are a member of the holy nation because it's made of a mixed fabric. And the mixed fabric isn't unclean, it's holy. And every Israelite wears that because every Israelite is a member of the priestly kingdom. Now, any other Israelite, if they came into contact with that woman, they would become ritually unclean. That just meant that they wouldn't be able to go into the presence of God for a certain amount of time without taking special, undergoing special rituals. But that didn't happen to Jesus. Instead, Jesus transmits his life outwards. And so we see death is stopped in its tracks because it met a body and encountered God. And now the whole logic of the Old Testament system is inverted because now it's not life which has to be protected from death it's life which is on the move outwards and the old weapons which used to work no longer work that is the ultimate meaning of the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead the resurrection of jesus is something which cannot be undone and it is something that was accomplished in a human body and soul and a human body and soul i.e human nature is objectively the microcosm of the world, the focal point of the world's existence. It's where all of the wires of the world's existence 
at the most basic uh, foundational level, all of those wires meet in human nature. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead and cannot die any longer, there is no weapon which even conceivably could overcome the power of life in the world. And so we see that is what's going on in the context of Numbers 5. The question is always going to be about, it's going to be about life, death, and the ability of Israel to stand as bride together with the God of Israel who is the bridegroom. And everything that's going on throughout the whole Old Testament is about the ability of Israel to live with God. And God is going to God veils himself from the people, not because he wants to exclude Israel from his presence, but because he wants to bring them as near as they possibly can go. It was essential that that happen so that he could train a special people to be brought near into him, so that when he came as near as near goes, when he joins himself to a human nature, there was actually a woman who was able to be the vessel, the instrument for that incarnation, because it would not simply not be possible ontologically naturally for the incarnation to occur if it had happened 500 years beforehand the next thing we see is when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the lord and the person realizes his guilt he shall confess his sin and he shall make full reparation for his wrong adding a fifth to it and giving it to him whom he did the wrong so we see here that um uh the confession is to God and it is to whomever he wronged on a human level, if indeed there is a human dimension to this. It, uh, this seems to be what we would call a sin of a high hand, or to use the later terminology that's used in Christendom. Uh, uh, it's in both Eastern and Western Fathers, but usually more Western tradition than the Eastern tradition. It's used more sparingly in the East, though it does have precedent. Uh, mortal sin versus venial sin. It's when you know that something is wrong. Something is really wrong and you do it anyway. You do it with a high hand. It's not a sin of inadvertency. It's a sin of a high hand. So what you have to do, you have to confess that sin. Then you have to make reparation to God. And the reparation is a reparation. It repairs your relationship with God because you have presumed upon the riches of God's grace. In other words, every moment, every moment that you have, every breath that you take is given by the gift of God. So to use that breath to rebel against God is a sin of presumption. You would die right there if, if things, uh, if if things operated outside of the boundaries of grace, simply because of the way that things work, simply because of the way that the world is wired. But God graciously extends your life so that you might have time to repent and then he works through your reparation to uh, pardon your sin and to bring you back into relationship with him so you notice here that there's a connection that's made in numbers five already between the relation of one man to another and the man to god and the same terminology that is breaking faith is used to describe the relationship of the Israelite to the God of Israel and the bride to her bridegroom. I've already described the ritual in, I think, I don't know if I actually got through the whole thing before I started going on some tangent. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just read to you the ritual just to make sure we have it in this video. Okay, so this is this is verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. This is the ESV. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith from him 
if a man lies with her sexually and is hidden from the eyes of her husband, if she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, that is, she wasn't caught in the, mid, uh, in the middle of it, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over her husband, and he is jealous of his bride, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, so if she has not defiled herself, that is, if he feels an intense sense of jealousy, uh, doesn't know whether she's guilty or not, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. Okay, so pause. This is something that we've already just been, uh, uh, just seen happening. Okay, so we've already seen this kind of offering being brought to God as reparation. Okay, so uh, and the, uh, the word for offering here is mincha. This is a tribute. A tribute is an offering of bread, and then when they come into the land of Canaan, it is an offering of wine as well as bread. Uh, and by the way, I'll just mention it here, though I'm sure we'll get to it again later. Uh, the tribute offering is the Eucharist in the New Testament. Okay, so Daniel 9 says that in the middle of the week, middle of the 70th week, that's when Jesus is crucified and resurrected, the sacrifice and the tribute will be made to cease. That is, the sacrifice and tribute of the Old Covenant will be made to cease. Well, the uh, sacrifice, the word there, is for peace offering, and that is the meal that you have with God. So that's a festal meal. Okay, uh, And in the Old Testament, the priests would actually eat the same food that God ate in this specific offering, the only offering where that would happen. When Israel comes out of Egypt to go to the Holy Mountain, it is said that it happens uh, so that they may offer sacrifice or peace offering to their God. Uh, and it's in the Eucharist where Jesus takes bread and wine, the very substances that are used for the tribute offering. He lifts them up to God. He blesses them. He breaks them. He says, this is my body. And he gives them to his disciples. So he first offers the stuff of the world formed from the raw material of the world into bread and into wine. He gives thanks, offers them to God, and then he shares them with his disciples. So they eat the same food that he's eating. We understand, of course, Jesus is the incarnate word. This is also a peace offering, and that is why it is those specific offerings that are invoked in Daniel chapter 9, where, by the way, it is talking about the intimate return of God's presence to dwell with the people of God which is what we see going on in the context of the Gospels when we hear about the words of institution. Jesus rides into Jerusalem in a narrative which echoes David's carrying the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Jesus goes into the temple, fulfilling all the prophecies that the God of Israel would return personally and gloriously to judge the temple. He looks upon the temple and he says, you've made my father's house a house or a den of iniquity. That is, it's not just a place where iniquity lives, it's a place where it breeds. It's a den. It's a place where the criminals, they go to multiply even further. You've made it a den of iniquity. And then he comes out, he flips the tables and he comes out and then he goes to the upper room. And the upper room spiritually corresponds to the inner sanctuary. Remember, inwards is upwards in the logic of the temple and the tabernacle. I said this a million times, but it's important to mention it in this context. Inwards is upwards. When they're in the upper room, they're in the inner room because they have poles running through the tabernacle horizontally to symbolize the fact that it's as if you are holding up the tabernacle one story on top of the other story. So they're closer to heaven here. And so here on the top of the holy mountain, architecturally, Jesus sets a new table, and that is where he dwells in an enduring way with his children. So, to anticipate some of the stuff that we're going to talk about a little later, in Luke chapter 7, 
in this context, one of the things that the people say when they behold the mighty works of Jesus is God has visited his people. And it says later in uh, uh, the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and everything is about to happen that I've just described, you did not know the day of your visitation because this is a personal encounter that Israel has with their God and it's the moment of choice, as it were. Okay, so uh, let's go back to we, where we are. We, we are verse uh, 15. Uh, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. Uh, I may mention this later, but the other place that barley, I, I don't think I've mentioned this already. The other place barley is used, and I, this is, I got this from James Jordan, okay? So this is not, you know, my own brilliance or whatever. This is the brilliance of James Jordan, which I am shamelessly stealing from him. Um, barley is mentioned in Ruth, okay? So what's Ruth all about? Well, Ruth is about a bride and a bridegroom, right? That's what redemption is about there. So when we hear about redemption in the context of Jesus bringing the human family to live with him, to be joined with his body, to be built into a household of God by the Spirit, that's the context you should be thinking of. That's how this all kind of rolls together and makes sense. Think about the way that the tribute offering works in view of the Eucharist, in view of the sanctuary, in view of purity and impurity, and in view of being bride and bridegroom. What does the Eucharist do? Well, it unites us to God. It draws us into God, draws us into his presence. It's the most intimate act of communion that we can have with the creator and it brings us into his household it makes us his bride and it makes us his body and those two things are two aspects of a single act of union because the two shall become one flesh and we're continuing the passage uh, it is a tribute or he shall pour no oil on it pour no put no frankincense on it for it is a tribute offering of jealousy a tribute offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Okay, And the priest shall bring her near, that's obviously a technical term in the Pentateuch, and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water. So this is the only time in the Old Testament holy water is mentioned. So what it seems to refer to is the water that is in what becomes in Solomon's temple, the uh, basin, the bronze basin of water that is right outside the doors of the uh, uh, holy place. Um, and it has 12 bulls upholding it. Uh, it's holy water, which means it is water that has a trace of the divine presence because of its relative nearness to God's presence. And we see here uh, the priest is to take that holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. So why dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle? Because it's been in the presence of God. Okay, That dust is the stuff which is mixed with divine presence. So you should be seeing the connections with the Eucharist here. We have the same offering that the Eucharist is described in terms of. That is the tribute offering. We have uh, bread and we have water. And the water is mixed up with the presence of God. And in fact, we'll get to this again. Paul, in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 to 11, will talk about marriage. He will talk about bridegrooms and brides. He will talk about jealousy over idolatry. He will talk about the true altar of the church, which is uh, the Eucharistic altar. And he will talk about the reality that when a person takes the Eucharist into themselves, they are blessed or cursed. They can be cursed when they take God's presence into themselves. Why? Because they are the bride of Christ. And interestingly, though I haven't quite worked out the logic of it, there is absolutely a connection. In 1 Corinthians 10, this is where we get Paul's statement about head coverings. And also here, we have something we're about to read about head coverings. And in his hand, the priest, we're reading the passage again, 
The priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man is lain with you, if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has laid with you, lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and your womb swell and uh, swell and your thigh fall away and the woman shall say amen amen then this priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness so we can see what is it that we receive in the eucharist well it's the incarnate logos well look at here here we have a book that is being washed into the water which the woman is going to drink And the priest shall take the tribute offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand. The fact that it's in her hand, that means it's a part of her. Okay, She's put herself into it, just like God has put himself into it. So the Eucharist is both our offering of ourselves to God and God's offering of himself to us. And it happens in a single motion. It's just God is always extending himself outwards, and the world is always reverting back inwards to God. And when we align ourselves with that reversion back inwards to God, that is done through the Eucharist. So it's one act whereby we dwell in God and God dwells in us. And the fact that she holds it, the fact that it's been connected with her hand, that aligns her, that identifies her with this tribute offering. And the fact that it is her tribute, that it, is, it comes from the wealth of her household, that aligns her, that makes uh, the offering a extended part of her. That is why uh, in the blessings and curses of the covenant, the women are made fruitful when the land is made fruitful. Your property is spiritually connected with you. It's part of you, in a sense. It's an extension of yourself. It will reflect the kind of person that you are. Before the flood, when almost everybody in the world was wicked, and the world had been placed under the dominion of man, that was just an objective fact about it. The world hated it so much that it blew up. Fountains of the great deep burst open. Windows of heaven were opened. The world fell to pieces. And it sought to rise up against its wicked slave master. And the priest shall take uh, a handful of the tribute offering as its memorial portion. Memorial portion. Memorial portion. Do this in remembrance of me or as my memorial. And burn it on the altar. That's divine presence. Burning burning is divine presence. And afterward, shall make the woman drink the water. Uh and when he has made her drink the water, if she has defiled herself, broken faith with her husband, the water brings the curse. That is the divine presence. It's the divine presence which brings the curse. We see the very same thing happening in a visionary sense in Zechariah when the book is a flying scroll. Remember, a book in the Old Testament is always a scroll. So it's a flying scroll, a flying book. And it goes and it flies. It, the dimensions of that flying scroll are identical to the dimensions of the inner sanctuary. And Jesus himself is a living inner sanctuary. Okay, so in the book of Kings, the word for inner sanctuary, or one of them at least, is, uh, what is the word? Nadir? Is it Nadir? Something like that. Well, you can just look it up for yourself. It's in 1 Kings 7 or so. It's the same word. The word is word, but it is also the word for inner sanctuary. And then in the Gospel of John, the word became flesh or the inner sanctuary became flesh, i.e. this is the place where God dwells. And her womb shall swell, her thigh shall fall away, the woman shall become a curse among her people, that it shall be barren. The instruments of reproduction will fail. 
But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and conceive children. So that means it's a multiplication of life into life. This is the law in the cases of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, by the way, that little phrase right there, that is something we hear about in 1 Corinthians 10. Again, I'm not sure what the logic of it is precisely, but when we hear about a symbol of authority on her head, when we hear about head coverings, when we hear in this context about tribute, when we hear about a loosening of the bride's hair, there is a connection. I'm still not quite sure what it is. Uh, if you have insight, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set this woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Uh, so in the next part of this discussion, which I will probably record today uh, and upload a couple of days afterward, we will talk about the connections that this has with some other passages in the Bible, most especially the one that I mentioned at the beginning, which is Luke chapter 7, where we have the woman who unbinds her hair and washes the feet, washes the feet, water, wash, connection of Christ, the mighty bridegroom, and I hope to see you then. Please pray for me. Thank you.